You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Um, Redemption Hill Kids, we have Redemption Hill Kids this morning, so you can go with Mr. Aaron, and he put a table right out there. So parents, you can keep an eye on your kids if you like, but you can just, just, excuse me, you are dismissed, you can go out there at this moment. Well, that, this is yet another edition of Church in the Park, right? We're just, the goal is like to hit every park in Waukee, um, so we'll, we'll make the rounds at some point. And yes, we are back in the book of Ephesians, you know the sermon series, it's called United in Christ. We've spent a lot of time talking about what it means to be united in Christ and all the benefits, the spiritual benefits that come with being united in Christ. And we know there's more to being united in Christ than our relationship with Jesus. We're united to one another because we're united to Christ. And so before I pray and we get into the text, I asked myself this question this morning, like, what does unity look like these days? We certainly know what it does not look like. Uh, You could argue that America has never been more divided, and we all see it. Some of us feel it. Just turn on the news. So in the midst of so much division, what if the church, our local church, could be a model of unity. I think that would be a beautiful picture to the world, for the world, that is desperately lacking unity. You know, Logan, uh, he and I were messaging the other day, and he had mentioned to me that, um, hey, <laughs> I'm shocked about how much Ephesians is actually about unity. <laughs> I feel like we're talking about it every week, and the, point, and the answer is yes, we have been talking about it every week. Because God is trying to highlight something for us through his word in the book of Ephesians. So it is not a shock that we're at this place once again. So let me pray briefly. I need help from the Spirit. I'm going to pray for you that you would receive all that God has through his word. Father, that is indeed the prayer. I need help to to be clear and concise about what you have already spoken through your word. Help me to shepherd um, my friends, my brothers and sisters. And may we continue to grow in our knowledge of you. But also, Lord, we want to grow in holiness, as we're going to see today. That our knowledge is one thing. Yes, we want to grow in that knowledge, but we want to become more like our Savior, Jesus. And that takes work. And that also takes help from the Spirit. So instruct our hearts and our minds this morning. Amen. So what is the path toward unity in the church? Right? It's a question that matters to God. Make no mistake about it, all over the pages of the New Testament, in particular the book of Acts and the Pauline epistles, unity is stressed over and over again. It's quite shocking when you actually step back and just think about, the, think about unity in the pages of Scripture. It, it's there more than we realize. Even when the, the New Testament writers call out false prophets and false teachers, the motive is to maintain unity in the church by defending biblical truth. You see, Paul do that all the time. You see those heretics over there? Don't believe them. What is he trying to do in those moments? He's like, I'm all about unity. 
I want to maintain unity in the church. So think about that for a moment. Biblical truth does divide. It does divide. But within the church, it should unite. In particular, the most fundamental doctrines should unite the church. Doctrinal purity is not the only target of those who want to see the church um, not remain united. A person's lack of character can displace unity with division. A person's character can displace unity with division. Later in Ephesians 4, we, we will look at this verse in more detail, but it's verse 31. Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. <laughs> Why does Paul have to say this? Because these sinful characteristics foster division. For example, I have seen firsthand how slander within the local church can divide a local church. I've seen that firsthand. We're not necessarily talking about doctrine and theology. We're talking about character. Taken altogether, a path toward unity in the church is, is twofold, at least in this particular passage. First, the people within the church are zealous to maintain biblical truth. You know that I'm about that. I know that many of you are about that. I want to maintain biblical truth. I want to be zealous for that. We want to look at God's word and say, okay, what does God say here? That's what I want to believe in this book. Second, there's striving by people in the church toward godly character. Truth and character matter to God, and they are the bedrock to seeing a true gospel-centered church last well beyond your death date. Upholding biblical truth and pursuing godly character also cultivate a church culture where those within the culture can flourish to the glory of God. I mean, listen, do not be fooled. Every church, business, home, cafe, sports team has a culture. The question is, what kind of culture? What is baked into the cake? The ingredients of the cake kind of make up the culture. Well, I hope truth and godliness are baked into the Redemption Hill cake. Truth and a bunch of saints who are trying to walk in godliness. I could come across as arrogant in saying these things because one could assume we hold the ultimate truth and that we are the ultimate models of godliness, right? Like, who are you to say you have all the truth, right? I mean, I get that. I can hear that kind of critique, you know? So what I'm not saying is that when you get to heaven, you will need to have every theological point correct. Like, you better make sure your end-time theology, your eschatology, maps on to, like, the Left Behind series, <laughs> which I don't hold to. <laughs> but but if I, when I get to heaven, God's like, nah, you're a little off. I, I'll, I'll take that hit. <laughs> I don't think I'm wrong, but I, I'll take that hit. Further, until Jesus returns, none of us will live perfectly. While the power to fight sin has been granted because of the atoning death of Christ at the cross, we know remaining sin does exist. So yes, there are fundamental truths of the Christian faith we must have correct. 
That's why we boil things down to the statement. We say the gospel, right? We've got to have that right. We're not going to let go of that. And yes, the Lord wants to see us moving into a trajectory of increased holiness. Therefore, the pursuit of unity means becoming more like Jesus. So Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 6, help us to see how the truth of God and Christ-like character matter to God because taken together, they help maintain unity in the church. Let me help make the point um, by doing a little math. I don't like math, but we're going to do a little math. Imagine you're all back in school. A math teacher hands you a piece of paper with one problem to solve. That's it. you got one problem. We all can do that. Even I can do that. Like I said, I don't like math. Not my favorite. But at the top of the paper, it indicates kind of what the problem's all about. Here's, here's, here's what the problem's all about. Your calling. Your calling. The title of the problem helps you to understand the nature of the problem that needs to be solved. And the problem is easy. We'll do some addition. It's simple. Sound doctrine plus godly character equals what? It equals church unity. Christian, this is your calling from God that we read about in Ephesians 4. And here's the deal. It's up to all of us, all of us, the redeemed of the Lord to pursue unity. It's not just the pastor's job. It's all of us. Our passage says the pursuit of unity in the local church is the calling, the calling of every Christian. And I hope that a calling from God in our lives means that we pursue that calling with a sense of joy, right? If God's calling you to something, you want to pursue it with joy, but also a sense of seriousness. If God's tasking you with something, you want to be like, whoa, this is coming from the Almighty. I better pay attention. So that's a bit of the overview of our verses. Now let's take a look at the details. As we consider where we're at in the book of Ephesians, we need to remind ourselves where we've been. The word, therefore, in verse 1, is there to remind us of what came before. How is it that you can walk out your calling, this calling that comes from God for your particular life? Well, the answer is this. Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. It's what we went through two weeks ago. Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. And in his prayer, he said, May God grant you to be strengthened with what? With power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. That was verse 16 of Ephesians 3. The prayer for the Ephesian church is now our prayer. That's for us, the saints of Redemption Hill Church. We want the Spirit to strengthen us in our what inner being in our core, deep down inside. Hence, we have that word, therefore. (laughs) Therefore. You know, the connection between prayer and your ability to live out your calling, it's essential. The only way you can live in a manner worthy of your calling, verse 1, is with help from the Spirit, and you seek the Spirit's help through prayer. So think about how that informs your everyday life, you know? man, I really want to walk out God's calling for my life. I want my, I want my friends at Redemption Hill Church to walk out their calling for their life. And man, I need the Spirit's help. That should drive you to prayer. Like, oh. That's what Paul was doing at the end of chapter 3. Think of it this way. You're not naturally humble, verse 3. 
from the moment you were born to this world, your inclinations were toward pride. You're not naturally gentle, verse 3 again. You might have a gentle disposition, but a gentle person on the outside can be really angry on the inside. How about this one? It is hard for you to be patient. Again, verse 3. Especially in a culture that seems to be moving at a breakneck speed, right? We are more conditioned by our culture to be impatient. And when is the last time you carried another person's burden? Or even better, when is the last time you have allowed someone else to carry your personal burden? I'll talk more about these four characteristics in a few minutes, but I want you to see that walking in a manner worthy of the gospel necessitates, actually no, it's more than that, it actually demands help from the Spirit. I think God is trying to pinpoint the the extent of your calling this morning from this passage. In our text, the word called, call, calling is used collectively four times. So if you've ever asked yourself the question, what is is the calling of God in my life? (laughs) From a pastoral ministry perspective, I get that a lot. Pastor, what's what's my calling in life, right? I'm like, I don't know. Well, if you've ever asked that question for yourself, what is my calling? This passage actually gives us some direction. What is essential to understand about God's call for your life is that God isn't as concerned with your career, your education, or like the house you live in, like these material things. God's call for your life is connected to what? Your character. You think about it that way? We get so consumed, like, ah. I mean, God does care about transitions in life and trying to figure out what's next, certainly. But what's in view here? How many times do we think about our calling from God in terms of our character? Too often, we think about the call of God in our lives in material terms. But character is taken center stage in Ephesians 4. Because you have been called, chosen, and elected by God before the foundation of the world to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that's all Ephesians 1, right? You are now to walk out that calling. In this sermon series, I've said Ephesians 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3, is about like doctrine, right, and theology. And Ephesians 3 to 6 is about putting our theology into practice. While we are making the shift now into Ephesians 4, we still see how practice is connected to truth. I thought about this in relation to, to the family, right? My kids were born into this world as a powers. That's the name they had. They were born in this world, and that's a powers right there. In a sense, they were called by God to be a powers. As Christian parents, Sharice and I, we are now calling our kids to live and act in a manner reflective of the values, the Christian values that we are teaching them. They have been called, and now they are called to walk out their calling. We do not promote one sibling to hit the other, but we expect respect for one another, for example. Now, all kids and families are a work in progress, right? We get that. But we want to make progress. We want the trajectory of their actions to move into a direction that honors God. That's the character component. Again, sound doctrine plus godly character equals unity. Sound doctrine and godly character are the ingredients that make unity happen. And we are called to pursue this unity, what does it say in our text? Eagerly. Look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're eager to do that. 
Christians are eager, or, or we could translate that particular Greek word as diligent to maintain unity. Think about things that you do diligently. I'm not a perfectionist, but there are certain things I like to do where I'm very diligent. I want to know the details. I'm getting into the weeds of things. We need to be diligent to maintain unity. If we are not eager and diligent, unity falls apart. It begins to fall apart. Let me be clear for a moment about what the pursuit of unity does not look like. The biblical call to unity does not happen for the sake of unity. Let me say that again. The biblical call to unity does not happen for the sake of unity. In other words, we do not unify around the idea of unity. Unifying around the idea of unity results in truth becoming relative. You have your truth, I have my truth, and now can't we all just get along? No. Many churches in America have adopted this perspective, and it's actually quite disheartening. Uh, I remember my first pastorate, my very first pastorate, uh, it was short-lived. It was a position I actually quit. Sharice knows this story very well. Um, what happened was is I, I was hired on staff, and shortly thereafter, the new lead pastor was basically hired on staff, and we, were, we served alongside for a couple months. But here's why I quit. After several months of being on staff together, the new lead pastor said, we do not need to unify around the truth. <laughs> I was stunned. I was sitting in my chair, and I'm like, did I hear that correctly? We do not need to unify around the truth, and what are we unifying around to sing kumbaya and strum the guitar around the campfire? No. Not at all. If a church claims to love the gospel of Jesus Christ and does not unify around the truth of the gospel, then what is the point? We can pack up and close down the church right now. I'm serious. We must unify around something or else it all falls apart. And indeed, the truth of God must unify the church. Yes, as I've said, truth also divides because it is propositional, and in the case of Christianity, it is objective. But its, but its ability to unify is actually more powerful. Let's look back at our passage. For the remainder of our time, I'm going to work backwards. In verses 4 to 6, we read of a confession of faith about the truth of God. You want to know what we're unifying around? It's these beautiful truths in verses 4 to 6. There is one body. There is one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It seems verses 4 to 6 are an example of like an early creed for Christians. Creeds are in the early church were meant to be memorized. These, these truths were spoken out loud as well as internalized. Kids certainly would have known this particular creed. And man, there's a lot packed into this creed. I can unify around these truths that we read about. I could write multiple sermons mining the truths of what it means to be one body or one spirit or worshiping one Lord, sharing one faith, etc. But for now, here are a few observations about this passage. The oneness of this passage further solidifies the unity in the church. We are not unified around one person in the church, for example, the pastor. You are not unified around me. Celebrity pastor culture certainly has made a shift about why people actually gather in the church. 
That's not what we're all about here. No, collectively it says we are one body. We are not unified around a fractured and uncertain future, but we have the same hope for the future. That's what we unify around. We're not confused about the fundamentals of our faith, but we share the same faith. The faith that God gave you to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is the same faith God gave me. We are united around that one faith. I want you to notice, I want you to notice what does not unite us. Think about this, especially in light of the culture in which we currently live in. We are not united around your job. We are not united by your education. We are not united by the zip code you live in. We are not united by your singleness or marriage. We are not united by the number of children you have or do not have. We are not united around your race. We are not united around your ethnic background. We are not united by your age. We are not united by your political party. We are not united by your citizenship. And the list goes on. Folks, we live in a country and a culture that is doing its level best to divide people. And the devil loves every minute of it, especially when it happens in the church. So we must settle in our hearts that we are united by the truths of verses 4 to 6. The moment you try to factor in one of those other categories into our unity is the moment unity will begin to crumble. Why will it crumble? Because a profession will be made that God isn't enough to hold our unity together. You are effectively saying you need God plus something else to stay united. When that becomes the case, unity is fragile. And it will eventually crumble. However, if we keep a laser light focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ our unity will remain strong. So let's not do this. I did some different kind of math earlier. Let's not do this kind of math. (laughs) Jesus plus something else keeps us united. Let's not go down that road. Don't you think that in a country of fractures, brokenness, and division, that an expression of unity might be attractive and refreshing? I think so. And there's no more beautiful and refreshing expression of unity than the church staying focused on its one faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, guys, I just want to level with you and commend you all for a moment. You, the saints of Redemption Hill Church, have remained united in the midst of tremendous pressure to be divided because of various opinions that exist. You know, we know the list, covid whether you wear a mask or not, politics, race, riots on the streets of America, the Capitol Hill riots of January 6th, these topics alone have divided families and friends, and I know that from firsthand experience. They've divided people. But here we are. Here we are. And we have brothers and sisters who are on vacation right now who couldn't be here today, but if they were here, say, here we are, gathered Remaining strong, remaining united. The only person, we're united because the only person who can hold our unity together is Jesus. We are one because we are collectively one in Christ. 
Okay, holding on and rejoicing in the truth of God is only part of the mathematical equation, right? In a universal sense, it is true that God's church, his bride, will endure until Jesus comes back. But the other part of the equation is about how a local church pursues the unity we have in Christ, right? We read about our faith being put into action. Let's continue to work backwards by looking at verse 2. You are called to these characteristics. Humility. Gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Think about it. humility, gentleness, patience, and enduring with one another in love. These characteristics come to life as the Spirit works in your heart. These characteristics are the glue keeping us together as a local church. Yes, it is God who ultimately holds it together, but Christians are called to model Christ, right? That's what Paul is saying. Look at your Savior and do likewise. So I want to highlight each of these characteristics one at a time. First, humility. Humility is the intentional response to the gospel of putting the needs of others before yourself. Here is absolutely my favorite passage on humility because it expresses the mode of humility. It's Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. Absolutely love this passage. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility do what? Count others more significant than yourself. And then verse 4 says, let each of you not only look to his own interests, so it's not just about Sean Powers, but look to the interests of other people. That's humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. You know where you can begin to practice that in a very tangible way? In your home. In your home. Begin there and start working outwards and practicing humility. You are told on a daily basis by the culture that you need to put your needs first. Like, next time you listen to a radio advertisement or watch a commercial on TV, consider its messaging. Just listen to it. Like, what are they, what kind of messaging? What are they trying to tell me, right? It's all about you. That's what they're saying. It's all about you. After you ponder the, the junk being spouted out, open your Bible to Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. If pursuing unity matters to you, and I know it does matter to all of you, then you need to know that your life is in service to King Jesus and in service to those who are sitting right next to you in the church. If you have no one right next to you, just keep looking down the line, man. You'll find somebody. You serve that individual. Here's another powerful verse, a powerful picture of humility from 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under what? Under the, like, the mighty hand of God. <laughs> Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. When you try to rise above God's mighty hand, you make yourself out to be better than God. You try to become your own God. We call this Pride. But eagerly maintaining unity is the joyful acknowledgement that you are under God's mighty hand and you are called to put the needs of others before your needs. Next characteristic. The following characteristic is gentleness. 
the Greek word for gentleness is actually quite fascinating. In the New Testament, when this particular word is used, the word is often connected with um, how a Christian treats a brother or sister who is living in sin or who is believing a lie. That's when gentleness is oftentimes used in the New Testament. It's someone going to another brother or sister being like, hey, um, got some observations to make about your sinful patterns or you're believing a lie. That's kind of the context here. We see that gentleness is interactive in this way, right? Interactive. In the church, it can look something like this. Let's say in your community group, a member comes to you confessing a perpetual sin. Should you be harsh with that person? Should you pound the person over the head saying, how dare you? No. No way. The response is actually to be gentle. Gentle. Yes, there might be a hard conversation. There are consequences for actions. However, the default of the church is actually grace and gentleness. When I was a pastor over youth several years ago, I I created a night where I told the youth, you can ask me whatever you want, and on the spot, it's actually kind of (laughs) risky, on the spot, because you don't know what a youth is going to say, on the spot I I would respond to the question, right? And I was asked this very specific question. I'll never forget it. Pastor Sean, yes? What would you do if one of the gals in youth group confessed to be pregnant? That was the question. I immediately said that it was the calling of the church to respond with gentleness and grace. The gal would likely already know the consequences of her sin, right? So it was now time for the church and the youth to care for their friend. We do not want to push away a person who confesses help or sin. That's ridiculous. No. Grace. Gentleness. We open our arms and respond. We're here for you. We're going to walk with you. This is hard. We see your heart. Let's go. The world is harsh, right? The church is called to be gentle. Gentleness fosters unity. And by the way, being gentle with one another does not mean you should not say a hard word to a brother or sister, but it means we should not say a harsh word. I think it'd be wise for you to see the distinction between the two. A hard word can also be a loving word. A harsh word is never loving. As the church, may we be gentle with one another, okay? Two more characteristics to look at and apply. Third, we need to be patient with one another. Patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, verse 22. Biblical patience isn't like slowing down the car on the interstate because you know you're, you're in a rush, right? You're going 15 over, you're like, I'm just going to dial back to 10 over, or maybe just go the speed limit, right? No, that's not really what we're talking about here in terms of patience. Biblical patience is meeting someone where they're at in life. Biblical patience is being willing to walk alongside a friend. If you know someone who is going through ongoing hardship, biblical patience means enduring with that person. Over the years, I have, I've tried to understand my need to be patient with another person in light of how God has been patient with me. Think about that for yourself. How patient has God been with you? Now go apply that to someone else. Now, 
you and I are not perfectly patient like God. But God's patience with me, for example, a 40-year-old dolt, that's what I am, a 40-year-old dolt, it tempers my impatience. For all of us, instead of expecting, to, expecting people to meet our standards and expectations, we can try to meet people where they're at, especially when they're going through really difficult seasons, because we all go through difficult seasons. That is biblical patience. Countless times and countless times more, God has met you and me right where we're at, and we can go do the same. This, this principle of patience was uh, um, taught to me while I was training for a half marathon several years ago, 13.2 miles. Not sure I highly recommend it. So several years ago, an older gentleman said, hey, Sean, do you want to train with me? And I'm like, uh, no, but yes. <laughs> I wanted to get in shape, but you know, the prospect of running is very low on my, my list priorities, but I did it. And uh, as I got to know him, I realized this gentleman was a marathon runner. He'd run all over the world marathons. And he runs half marathons for fun. That's just a weird concept for me. He's a running machine, and, you know, I'm going to trip over my feet making my way to the truck. You know, two different guys. Well, this guy ran next to me the entire time. He never left my side. When we trained, he was right there. When I was sucking air, he was encouraging me. On our first half marathon that we did together, it was like 95 degrees running up a hill. He was there with me every step of the way, even though he could have finished, you know, one hour ahead of me. <laughs> he walked alongside me. He modeled, I think, biblical patience. So there's a difference between pulling a person up to where you're at and coming alongside them. I do think there is a place to pull a person up to where you're at when they're down, but I think unity is developed, at least what we see in this passage, when we walk alongside one another, when we endure with one another, when we are patient with one another. All right, one more characteristic. Here's the last one for developing and maintaining unity in the church. We are to bear with one another in love. We know, we know that Christ carries our burdens, right? Now, we also know we are to do the same for one another. Why is this important? As I've already said, and you know this from experience, life is hard. Life is full of ups and downs. One day might be great for you, and that day might be hard for you, but then the next day it might be hard for me, but great for you. Bearing each other's burdens means we can have compassion and sympathy for one another. Bearing burdens might solicit a tangible response from others. Here's an example of love in action at Redemption Hill Church. We see this when babies are born, right? What's the burden there? You guys, if you've had kids, you know, it's the meals. <laughs> like, how are we going to eat? We're just trying to survive. And many of you have been like, you know what? I'm going to help provide the meals. That's, that's a, an example, a tangible way of bearing a burden with another brother or sister in Christ in the church. And there are many more examples I could cite about how I've seen that in our small church. But I also got to say this. Some people have burdens that are not expressed. And I would simply say, you need the prayer of the church. You need a friend to speak with. You need a shoulder to cry on. You need some practical help. Don't ever remain silent. The church is 
unable to love well if people are silent about the burdens. And I've seen this in every church I've ever pastored at. There are people who just don't, they don't feel like, oh, I don't want to give that person my burden. They're busy. They're overtaxed. I don't want them to carry my issues. No, it's not what we read in Scripture. It's not what we read in Scripture at all. You will not receive the full expression of God's love through the church by bottling up burdens. You know, it's, I don't say that to keep condemnation. I say it all because God wants to use the saints around you to be an expression of God's love for you. We all want to feel God's love, but that happens right here. So yes, if you've got a burden, share it. Share with your community group. Share with um, other brothers and sisters in Christ. Bearing with one another is an expression in the church of love. So Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, gives us a picture of what unity looks like in the local church. So we're all called unity. I'll end by going back to my least favorite subject in school, math. If we uphold sound doctrine, plus embody these four characteristics, moving into a position of increased Christ-likeness, right? We are little Christ. We will be an expression of God's goodness and glory on earth. We will experience the sweet joy of gospel unity. We read in Ephesians 4, 1 and 6, that we will look different from the often cruel and harsh world. We will look different. And guess what? We want to be different. We are certainly in the world, but not of the world. And the way we look different is that we remain united around our Savior, Jesus Christ. We will look different because we offer a message of one hope. We offer a message of one faith. We offer a message of forgiveness and redemption. And we, the church, can model godly characteristics that promote foster and maintain the unity we have to the glory of God. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.